All right, we're finishing out road trip playlist today. So if you've got a Bible, join me in Psalm 133. By the end of today, we will have explored five of the 15 songs of ascent. These are a group of songs within the larger psalm book of psalms. And while 33% might not seem like a representative whole, if we were baseball players, that would have put us in the Hall of Fame. So that's pretty good. A 333 average will do that. But I hope you've taken some time or will take some time to read through all of these songs. If you're new to the series or just new to the Bible in general, these are located between Psalm 120 and Psalm 134. And they hold a rich history, especially since it can be argued that Jesus sang these songs on his way to Jerusalem when he was a boy. And so this morning, out of Psalm 133, I want to speak to you on the subject of eternal life through Mountain Dew. I'm guessing that you didn't know that Mountain Dew led to eternal life, but, uh, or that it was even in the Bible, but check it out. Here it is. A song of a sense of David. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there... On the mountain dew, the Lord has commanded the blessing of life forevermore. Not sure how much clearer God could have made that. Mountain dew leads to eternal life, okay? That is poor exegesis, which is why you all should also study your Bible and not just take my word for it. But since I brought this subject up, how many of you all saw that uh, Mountain Dew teamed up with Kentucky Fried Chicken to develop a flavor of Mountain Dew that it tastes like honey and peach? They combine the flavors into a peach sweet tea. Did you all see this? Uh, no. Okay. Taco Bell did the same thing a number of years ago with their Baja Blast, and now KFC uh, is supposed to, uh, this flavor that they've developed is supposed to resemble a sweet peach tea because, you know, apparently sweet peach tea didn't have enough calories or sugar in it to begin with, so they thought, well, we better combine this with Mountain Dew and fried chicken, you know, hashtag God bless America. That being said, there is some valuable information within this song for us to explore. And since we will not be referencing the tasty beverage of Mountain Dew again, let me just remind you that even though it was invented by hillbillies in Tennessee for their moonshine during the 1940s, I would still highly recommend trying it at least once. There are plenty of flavors to choose from. But the song. Here we go. Verse 1. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Now, I don't know what your household looks like or how you grew up, but brothers and sisters dwelling in unity is not something I'm accustomed to seeing. My family just got back from a quick trip to Stockton Lake. It's about a four-hour drive. And how many of y'all know that an eight-year-old boy and a six-year-old girl do not dwell in unity in a crowded minivan for that duration of time? It is neither good nor pleasant. Keep asking my mom to sew up some muzzles for these kids, but she seems to think it is inhumane. She's also conveniently never in the van when they are in there with us. Nonetheless, a unified family is the picture David chose to use when describing the words good and pleasant. He says, when families are united, 
it is good and pleasant, and I think we'd all agree with that. My house is much more pleasurable and enjoyable when people are getting along. Yours is too. Uh, what's interesting about that word choice, though, and there's no reason that you would ever know this, it's what you pay me for, but there's only two passages in the entire Old Testament that combines these two Hebrew words, tov and naim, good and pleasant. Here's one, Psalm 135.3, praise the Lord, for the Lord is good, sing praise to His name, for that is pleasant. The other one is Psalm 147, praise the Lord, how good it is to sing praises to our God, how pleasant and fitting to praise Him. Now, what I find interesting about this is that these two passages are used, uh, good is used to describe God, pleasant is used to describe our response, which is praise. Yet the initial passage that we read, Psalm 133, uses good and pleasant to describe unity. And I think the point is clear that because God is good and worthy of our praise, when we are united in worship, it is pleasant both to Him and to everybody else who is around. This is why the Bible frequently refers to Christians as God's family. A united family, a unified family, a family in unity, praising God is both good and pleasant. Tragically, unity is not often what you'll find in the family of God. And it was like this from the very beginning. Cain killed Abel. Lot quarreled with Abraham. Joseph's brothers hated him, sold him into slavery. Miriam and Aaron criticized their brother Moses. King David had children turn against him. One tried to overtake his throne. Even our Lord's own disciples frequently argued over which one of them was the greatest. There is a long, sad history of rivalry and division, and it doesn't seem to have gotten any better in recent years. And honestly, it's destroying the credibility of the church. Now, keep in mind, David is writing to a specific group of people, to the Jews. So think about this. Jews spoke the same language. They worshiped the same God in Yahweh. They were governed by the same law of Moses, and yet they still found reason to divide. Generally, over trivial issues, that became titanic issues. Fast forward to today, and Christians have the same spiritual birth through Jesus, declare the same gospel message of the forgiveness of sins because Jesus is our perfect sacrifice, and you can be saved by faith in Him, not by anything that you've done, but by what He has done. And pastors generally preach, preach from the same scriptures, but there is perhaps now more division than probably ever. In fact, I would put dollars to donuts that if you ask somebody who does not go to church, if they felt like churches were unified under the same mission, every one of them would say no. And yet we've been given a mission. It's called the Great Commission. Rick Warren commented on this, and here's what he had to say. He says, it is your job to protect the unity of your church. Unity in the church is so important that the New Testament gives more attention to it than to either heaven or hell. God deeply desires that we experience oneness and harmony with each other. Unity is the soul of fellowship. Destroy it and you rip out the heart of Christ's body. It's pretty graphic. And I know, but the question you should be asking yourself is, is Rick right? 
Does New Testament Scripture teach that the unity is the soul of fellowship, and if you destroy it, it rips the heart out of Jesus? That's a good question. I'm glad you asked it, because yes, it does. I'll give you one example. Romans 15:5. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. God deeply cares about unity, and you should too. So before we talk about the rest of our psalm, let's talk practically about unity. What is it? If it's so important, then how do we obtain it? And according to the kind folks down at Merriam-Webster, they define unity as the quality or state of being made one or unification. Another definition said unity is a condition of harmony or accord. And if you trace these definitions back and what this thing looked like throughout Scripture, you can actually first see unity appear in the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. It says that the people were of one mind trying to make a name for themselves, which is a very important distinction. They were not doing what they were doing to bring praise to God. They were doing it to bring praise to themselves. And they were uh, building this epic tower and a cultural epicenter of the world. And God comes down and He disperses them because even in wickedness, unity is powerful. Contrast that unity with the unity that you see in the book of Acts, where the disciples are all gathered together, praying with one unified spirit, and what happens? Again, God shows up. This time, people start getting saved by the thousands. People start speaking in languages they didn't even know they could speak in. Dudes start getting healed simply by touching rags that the apostles touched. It's crazy, it's impressive, and it brought praise to the Lord. And so if that's what unity can bring, the power of God on this planet, and if David is right that unity is good and pleasing, then we need to figure out, okay, what does unity require so that we can experience this same sort of event here and now? Jot this down if you're taking notes. Unity requires determination. Unity requires determination. This is not an overnight, instant, quick fix sort of thing. Unity requires grit and resolve, and it is pretty much the antithesis of our current American culture and values. We want everything to come easy and fast. Yet Colossians 3.12 says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other. And forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all those virtues that we just named, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect, what's that word? Harmony, Harmony, unity. It's the same uh, Greek word. It means the same thing. So if you're being honest with yourself, I think we could all agree that being with each other and bearing with each other and clothing ourselves with compassion and kindness and humility and patience, that is far from easy. 
It requires determination. It requires constant reminding. Why? Because people are jacked up. And bearing with them is hard work. We're selfish by nature. We want our own way. Unity is not our default position. Write this down. Unity requires humility. Unity requires determination. Unity also requires humility. To quote C.S. Lewis, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. We need to be more concerned with our relationships than we are with ourselves. And to be fair, you already know this is true. If you've ever watched a good sports team win a championship by coming together, they generally have a star who puts aside all their own goals and all their own aspirations for the sake of the team. And these are the teams that we love to watch, especially if they're underdogs. Think of the early 90s with the greatest of all time, MJ, Uncle Mike, as we like to call him in my house, winning the championships with the Bulls three in a row. They were underdogs against the Detroit Pistons who fouled them all the time. The Knicks were all jacked up. Y'all still with me? Man, it's bad, you know, bad times. But we love cheering and rooting for the underdogs because deep down we long for people to come together and overcome. We want unity. It's within our DNA. We're naturally drawn to it, but that does not make it easy to achieve. See also point one, determination. Here's something else. Unity requires trust. Unity requires trust. Ephesians 4.3 says this, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all who is over all, through all, in all. Starting to see a pattern? One, 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 one. What's the author implying? Keeping unity requires effort. Every effort, he says. If there's anything that I have learned in my short time on this earth, it is that trust requires effort. You have to start assuming the best in people instead of assuming the worst. There is a leadership expert and guru named Patrick Lencioni, and after years of consulting and studying this very type of thing, he said the number one factor in building a workplace team that's united around a goal that achieves uh, things that beyond their wildest dreams, the number one factor in that is trust. And I would bet that if you can think of a dysfunctional relationship in your family or in your life, if it's a boss, a spouse, a child, a friend, whatever it is, if you would think about that, I can almost guarantee the reason there is dysfunction in that relationship, the reason it's not unified is because any one of those three elements is not present. Either determination, humility, or trust. Something is missing. Now, before we can chat about fixing that, you need to know that what unity is not is just as important as what unity is. And you need to know that unity is not uniformity. Unity is not uniformity. I'll say it like this. Unity necessitates individuality because if we were all the same, we wouldn't need each other. We wouldn't need to be unified. We wouldn't have to work at anything because it would all come easy. 
We'd like the same stuff. We'd believe the same stuff. We'd all have the same gifts, talents, and abilities, but that's obviously not a reality. So think about this. When God created the world and everything in it, he made a man in his image. And God put this man named Adam into a garden to work it and rule over it and essentially be God's representative, his viceroy here on earth. God wanted man to dwell in unity with him and with his creation. But when God looked down at the man who was all by himself, he said, this is not good. So he brought every animal to Adam so that Adam could find a helper suitable to him. But every time he saw an animal, Adam said, this one is not like me. This is not it. Ultimately, God puts Adam to sleep and creates a woman out of man. That's what that word means, woman out of man. And the man, Adam, wakes up and literally says, mine. That's what that Hebrew word means, mine. And he's like, yes, absolutely, this is the one who is like me. This is my helper. And it's sad that I even have to bring this up, but in 2019, you can't let anybody tell you that genders don't matter and identities don't matter and we're just all social constructs. Hooey balooey. That is my filtered word since it's family Sunday. Come back next week, you'll hear something different. But What I'm trying to drive at is it was no accident that God created all kinds of races and languages and plants and animals and insects and trees and yes and amen to unity, but just because you're strong at something doesn't mean everybody else has to be. And just because you don't struggle with something doesn't mean nobody else will either. Unity is not uniformity. Show you one more text just to drive this point home. 1 Corinthians 12. The human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body. So it is with the body of Christ. Some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, some are free, but we have all been baptized into one body by one spirit, and we all share that same spirit. Yes, the body has many different parts, not just one part. If the foot says, I am not a part of the body because I'm not a hand, that does not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, I'm not a part of the body because I'm not an eye, would that make it any less a part of the body? No. We're all a part, no matter what part. We're all important, which means if you're not contributing to the proverbial church body, you're causing it to be handicapped. You have something against handicapped people, Pastor? No. Most day I would appreciate their parking benefits. But I can almost guarantee every single one of those people would not choose to be handicapped if it were a choice. Now here's where things start to get a little dicey because nobody would argue with anything that I've just said up until this point. Nobody would say that argue, or argue that unity is bad or Scripture does not want us to be unified. So the reason it's dicey is because, again, most Christians and most churches are not unified. What I want you to wrestle with is the reason why. I'm going to argue that the reason why is because people are not against unity. They are against accountability. People don't want to be told what to do or they, they don't want to be told what to think, or be held accountable for their actions, or what they said was wrong. Nobody wants to hear that, which is 
which I don't want to project onto anybody, but I think it's worth answering in your own heart. Are, a, are you a unified contributing member of a local church body? And if the answer to that is no, then you need to wrestle with why not. And listen, I don't care if it's this church body. This message is not about a membership drive. Make no mistake, my life would be a lot easier if you were not a member here. Because Scripture makes it clear that I'm going to be judged twice as harsh by how I lead this group of people and the members of this church. So if there's only two or three of you and we made membership super difficult to be a part of, then I'd be sitting pretty on judgment day. But that's not what this is about. This is about how God has equipped us to lead this place. This is about faithfulness. So let me pastor you for a second because the word membership might cause some agitation in your spirit based on how you grew up. And you need to know that membership here at New Anthem is probably different than what you've experienced in your past. In fact, I can just sum it up in two words. Membership at New Anthem is about commitment and accountability. Commitment and accountability. When you sign the membership covenant here, you're agreeing to submit to the authority of this church's leadership, and you're committing to the unified mission that God has sent us out on by contributing to the body. And just so you know, I am not the final arbiter on leadership decisions. We have multiple elders, which if you're a member, you get to choose those elders, which is a good reason for you to become a member. In fact, members are voting today after services on their uh, eldership leadership. Uh, furthermore, you should know that every decision made by the elders has to be unanimous. We have to be unified. Why? Because God hates discord. Check this out, Proverbs 6.1. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. I didn't put the whole list in. The very last one, though, is one who sows discord among brothers. In other words, God hates it. It is an abomination when people are not committed to unity. I think the roots of all that started in heaven when an angel named Lucifer was kicked out. And he took one-third of the angels with him. He sowed discord there, and he's trying to sow discord here because the devil knows what you need to know. And that is if he can divide, he can conquer. And nowadays, denominations are dividing. Churches are a lot of people who alarming rate. People are bickering. And meanwhile, there are a lot of people who desperately need to hear about Jesus. And they're out there drowning while Christians are looking up the Greek word for life raft. Y'all tracking with that? They don't care. They care about somebody throwing them a life raft. They don't care what you know until they know that you care. And we're supposed to help people in love. And so here's the bottom line, and then I've got to keep going to the rest of the verses. This church is not interested in playing religious games. We're interested in being effective in how we minister to people. Making disciples, which is what the Bible has commanded us to do. And I believe that God has created you with a specific gift and talents and abilities and a mindset with a plan and a purpose to assist in that mission of making disciples. I also do not believe you are here by accident. 
God brought you here for a reason. So what I hope you find in this place is a committed group of people who love their church, quite frankly, because Jesus loved the church and gave his life up for it. So if there's any one thing that I want people to use in language to describe this church is that we're laser focused on unity and mission because it is good and pleasant. And I don't want my kids growing up the way I grew up in hating church because everybody is just fighting all the time. Amen, somebody. That's what we're about. Good and pleasant, unified worship. Two verses left, real quick. In addition to good and pleasant, it, unity, is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. What in the world? We've already talked about Mountain Dew. Now we got Dollar Shave Club beard oil all coming down on people. Maybe this would have been a better Father's Day message. What is going on? Why the oil? Why the beard? Why is his collar even mentioned? This is all very confusing, okay? Again, David is writing to a specific group of people, and he's using imagery that makes sense to them. They all know about the anointing oil, and they all know who Aaron is and the priests and everything that anointing oil represents. But here's all you need to know. In the book of Exodus, when God rescued the entire Israelite people, the Jews, out of slavery, he set up a bunch of rules and laws in order for them to worship him and set them apart from the nations around them. Part of that involved a religious system where priests were the only ones who could come to God. And that's not the case anymore, which is why when Jesus died, the curtain separating the Holy of Holies was split in two because now we don't need a priest uh, to get us to God. Jesus was the ultimate priest, and now we can come to God through him. But Aaron was the first priest who was allowed to be in the presence of God, the Holy of Holies and the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant. So what this is talking about is how through Aaron, All the tribes of Israel were anointed by God. That's why Aaron's collar is mentioned. Uh, God was so distinct in his creation of the priests and everything. He told them exactly what to wear, and he had them create an ephod and all kinds of things. And there were 12 stones sewn into the collar representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And so the anointing oil is coming over all the tribes. It's symbolic. David is saying how good and pleasing it is that all the tribes are now united and anointed together. This is a big deal for David because when he took over the kingdom, that was not the case. They were divided and they were bringing them back together. The reason you should care about anointing oil is because if you are a follower of Jesus, then you also have been anointed, but this time not with oil, but rather by the Holy Spirit. 1 John 2.20, you have an anointing from the Holy One, the Holy Spirit of God, and you all know the truth. In other words, this anointing of the Holy Spirit helps you discern what is right and what is wrong. It helps you navigate the world around you by the leading of the Holy Spirit. Furthermore, when it comes to our discussion on unity, when we see other people as God's anointed, then our relationships will be profoundly affected. Because as the anointed, 
you'll understand what Christ is trying to do in both of you. It will be impossible for you to judge each other because you'll know the truth. Write this down. Anointing brings understanding. Understanding brings unity. The anointing of the Holy Spirit is leading you in truth. It brings understanding. This anointing and understanding leads to unity. Practically speaking, that means you need to start taking the time to try understanding one another. Try speaking to each other. Share your concerns. More importantly, share them with the people you disagree with and you're concerned about. Because when you don't and you start talking about them instead of to them, you're spreading discord. See also Proverbs 6, 1, verse 19. 1 and 19. God hates discord. Go to the person in conversation. Have an intelligent way to try and understand one another. It doesn't mean you're going to agree on everything. You might have to agree to disagree and part ways, but that's not sowing discord. At least you're having the conversation. Last verse, verse 3. It, unity, is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing life forevermore. This is rather simple to explain. Mount Hermon is the highest mountain in that area of the world. It is often characterized by heavy snow in the winter and heavy dew in the summer. All the people singing this song would know that. But then that Mount Hermon is contrasted with Mount Zion, which is low and dry. And David writes, the dew from Hermon comes to Zion as well. What he means by that is the life-giving moisture that brings blessings of God to Mount Hermon comes to those on Mount Zion as well. This is representative for you of the dry places in your soul. If you're arid, if you're low, if you're desperate, God's ready to bring you a rain of blessing via unity with other believers. Here's how I put it in your notes. Unity brings blessing. Unity brings blessing. And so here's what I want you to think about as we close this down, wrap up this entire series. Externals divide us. Gender, wealth, appearance, ethnic prejudices, political standing, all those external labels divide us. But the Spirit binds us together. We are a family of God. So listen to me very closely. I'm not saying that all paths lead to heaven and do whatever is right for you or any of that nonsense. I'm saying if you will live how God is calling you to live and you will commit yourself to a local church body of like-minded believers who are living how God has called them to live, then imagine the difference that you could make in the world. Just to paint the picture for you, I want to give you the most powerful example of unity that I could find, so stay with me. Relevant Magazine partnered with a study organization, and they found about three years ago that the average Christian only gives away 2.5% of their income. The point of this is not to guilt you into giving, so don't hear me say that. The point I'm trying to make is, what if believers were to increase their giving 
and be unified in that to, I don't know, let's say an amount like 10%. Here's what they found. On average, there would be an additional $165 billion for churches to use and distribute every year. The global impact of that would be phenomenal. Here's what you could expect if the church would be unified in this one area. $25 billion could relieve global hunger and starvation from, and deaths from preventable diseases within five years. $12 billion a year could eliminate illiteracy in five years. $15 billion a year could solve the world's water and sanitation issues, specifically in places where people live on less than a dollar a day. Billions of people around the globe living on less than a dollar a day. Let that sink in. $1 billion could fully fund every overseas mission work in the world. And there would still be about $100 billion left over for additional ministry expansion in this country. You want to talk about good and pleasing unity? There it is. We just wiped out almost every problem the world is currently facing. The question is, do you believe it's possible? I'm crazy enough to believe it is. But it involves going through the difficult process of bringing about unity. Finding it in your spirit to say, I might disagree on some things, but the overall mission to me is more important. And I'm going to ring out my life to bring people to Jesus and see lost people found. That's what God's asking of you and your life. Every head bowed, every eye closed. God, thank you for this word. God, there are things about this that are difficult. Unity in general is hard. And so God, I'm just asking you to do what only you can do, which is lead us into your holy presence change our hearts, change our minds, change our attitudes, change our thinking. Help us figure out this plan that you have for our lives. Help us figure out how to use our purpose. We don't need to change what we're doing. We just need to figure out how to make a ministry out of it. God, you're the only one that can help with that. So send your Holy Spirit in a powerful way to illuminate our hearts. God, forgive us of our sins. Help us follow more closely to you. Let us surrender our lives to you and go through the difficult process of being in relationship with other people. First with you, then with others. All this is possible, God. We trust in you. Help us find this blessing that you've promised life forevermore in heaven with you for those who trust in Jesus as their Savior. God, we love you. We praise you. You're worthy of our praise. Help us as we leave this place make a difference where you have placed us. We ask all this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.